Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, To the King, with a message entitled, The King in His Power. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In the late 1800s, during the time that construction was going on at Emerson Hall, which is at Harvard, then-President Charles Eliot invited famous psychologist and philosopher William James to suggest a suitable inscription of the new home of the philosophy department at Harvard. You know, after some reflection, William James sent President Eliot a line from the Greek philosopher Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. James never heard back from Eliot, so his curiosity was pretty high when he saw workmen working on the inscription that was being hidden by a large canvas. And one morning, the scaffold, the workmen, and the canvas were gone. And the inscription? It came from Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Gone was the supremacy of man, and in its place was a sense of wonder that the great God would be concerned for us at all. I've been speaking about the King, the great God of heavens. He rules over all and his power is unstoppable. Today and tomorrow, I want to go through Psalm 2. And today, we'll look at the bitter opposition to the King and see the calm assurance the King has in the face of such opposition. And then, tomorrow, we'll look at the second half of this Psalm and we'll examine the doctrine of the coming of the Messiah. Well, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and for many years, it did prepare the way for the faithful people of God to anticipate the coming of Jesus. But it is the first part of this psalm that shows us the dramatic battle arrayed against the king and the king's response. So let's begin by reading Psalm 2, verses 1 to 5. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It is clear by reading the beginning of Psalm 2 that it begins by depicting the nations that are devising warfare against the king of the heavens and that the king of the heavens sees them as no threat at all. Now, at the outset, it's also plain that David is the author of this psalm, and he is the one whom the God of heaven has appointed as his anointed one or as his Messiah. It seems, therefore, that the natural historical way to interpret this psalm is to consider some of the wars of David as the backdrop to what we find here. You know, perhaps a chapter like 2 Samuel chapter 8, which lists the many victories of David over the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and, and so forth. And there was a period of time when all David's enemies fell before him, and God gave him the power to secure the kingdom of Israel from her enemies. And that does make sense. I mean, after all, Israel is the chosen people of God, and God has determined that his voice of salvation would sound out from Israel to the whole world. Therefore, the kings of the earth that take counsel together are those who oppose the plans of God and his salvation. But this psalm, even while it applies to David quite well, is also true of those forces that array themselves against God's rule throughout history. There has been and still is a long war against God, against the king, and against his rule. 
The war begins the day Eve is told that if she disobeys God, that she will be like God. She's going to be a God in her own right. And the war carries on when Cain, realizing that God rejects his offering and accepts his brother's offering, rises up against his brother and kills him in an open field. And the rebellion against God gathers strength when men like Lamech is no longer ashamed of revenge and murder, and he thinks it's a sign of virtue. But the war against God is seen as Herod, sought to destroy the Messiah when he was a baby. And during his ministry, there are a number of attempts on Jesus' life. I'm going to look at the details of verse 1 in just a moment, but in order to make this psalm applicable to our day, let's see how the war against God is being fought today. You know, I've mentioned that the reality of persecution against believers, you know, who seek to spread the gospel in the world is an example of the kings of the earth taking their stand against the Lord. But let me talk about the Western world. Uh, That world since the 18th century that was shaped by the Enlightenment. You know, I began today's study by making mention of William James' desire in the inscription at Harvard. For those of you who are history buffs, you might know that Harvard was originally established as a seminary. It was a place to train pastors. It was a Bible training university. But the change at Harvard is really illustrative of the change that has happened in the entire Western world. Prior to the Enlightenment, Europe basically believed in a world that was the result of God's creation and that the Bible was the revelation of God's will to man. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't problems. The corruption of the church was overwhelming. Superstitions ran rampant. Wars were declared, sometimes for the worst of reasons. The Spanish Inquisition sought to force conversion onto Jews and others. No, no, this world was not an idyllic Christian world. It was a world filled with rebellion against the true God. But then something changed. The Enlightenment was a worldview that insisted on the supremacy of human reason and not on God's wisdom. And to be honest, it did propel an interest in the natural sciences and a curiosity as to how the world worked. But all the early scientists were Christians, and so at least at the outset, it didn't seem like any of this explosion of human observation was even remotely related to a war against God. But the 19th century produced what many have called the trinity of modern secular thinking. The trinity consisted of Darwin, Marx, and Freud. You know, from Darwin, we were taught that we don't need a creator to understand the complexity and majesty of the natural world. Instead, the world itself exists as a result of natural selection and adaptation and purposeless random chance. And from Marx, we were taught that human beings don't yearn for spiritual things. We yearn for material things. History is not the outworking of God's purposes. Rather, it's the outworking of the conflict between the rich and the poor. People need material things, and religion is often the tool used by the rich and the powerful to keep people from the things that they rightfully should have. And from Freud, we learn that human beings were not created in the image of God. Rather, we consist of the conflict between the desire to seek pleasure, especially sexual pleasure, and on the other hand, the desire to keep rules imposed on us by our parents and our society. And all that God is, according to Freud, is simply an extension of our own fathers. And all of this was leading the way to a great war against the very idea of God. And it was the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche 
the great high priest of modernism, who argued that God is dead, that the Enlightenment was wiping the horizon of every vestige of God through both science and philosophy, that the human race had gone beyond good and evil, and that Jesus himself was a pathetic and ugly spider hanging from a cross, and that Jesus was only the God of the weak and the despised. Evolution, said Nietzsche, was the God of the strong and of the survivors. And in America, many of the founders were in fact deists, who believed that God had created the world and had simply gone away and was no longer interested in the world. And many have undertaken to write of the total transformation of Western cultures as the experiment to live life without God. You know, as one writer from the 1800s wrote, in the past, when there was a plague or a disease, we used to crowd the cathedrals and call on God for mercy. Now we simply open up the manholes and repair the sewers. We have no need for God, and we have no need for his rule. We only need to push back the boundaries of our own ignorance. Well, such proud words, such confidence, such security that we have overcome God. And that's why William James wanted the inscription at Harvard, man is the measure of all things. Our reason, our inventions, our discoveries, our philosophies, our economic theories, all of this was providing us with everything we once thought we needed from God. I know that Psalm 2 was written during the Wars of David, when the kings of the earth wanted nothing of Israel, Israel's God, and his plan to bring salvation to the rest of the world. But I don't think that we misapply Psalm 2 if we think of it against our own background. The war against God has taken many different forms in many different times in history. Today, we who live in the West are simply living in one of those forms. In our day, as in every other day in history of this broken and sin-soaked planet, the nations of the earth are raging against the Lord. But why, we might ask, do those nations seem so much more formidable than what is described in Psalm 2? Well, I'll try to explain that, and I hope to give you the view that comes from the king. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in his word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts. Now, as we look at Psalm 2, you're going to notice that the war against God is, in fact, a conspiracy against his rule. Verse 1 says, why do the nations rage? The nations may be vastly different from one another in terms of, you know, philosophies or what they want to accomplish, but they have one thing in common. They rage. 
And that's what's happening in our society. It rages against God. And the word rage means a loud, noisy opposition, one that seethes with antagonism. One translator put it this way, why do the nations stir up riots? And then they also plot, they meditate. If one compares Psalm 2 with Psalm 1, in Psalm 1 we learn that the righteous man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. But the unrighteous nations also meditate, but they meditate on rebellion against God. And then in verse 2, the nations set themselves, that is, they try to establish a foothold upon which they might fight against God. Like on a battlefield, they try to establish a place of solid ground where the fight might be undertaken. They take their stand, believing the place they stand will be solid ground. Here, they say to themselves, is is good ground from which a battle might be undertaken. We can wipe the horizon of God. And then we read the rulers counsel with each other, trying to band together so that their joint strength might overcome the Lord. Now, each of those four descriptions comes with an assumption, and I hope you don't miss it. The idea here is that the nations are not ruling. They are rather fighting against or attempting to overthrow the one who actually rules. In other words, it's not as if the nations have shut God out. Yes, they're trying to do that, but it is their attempt. It is their rebellion. It is their war, which they have not won. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds. That is, let's break the shackles that God has placed on us. Now, again, within the historical context of this psalm, we know this refers to the nations that David has conquered. And just so that we understand David's situation, he he wasn't trying to subjugate all those nations. God had given Israel the promised land, but not the lands of those nations. Israel was to live at peace with those nations. But David did end up in war against them, and it was because he needed to defend himself against them. Their aggression resulted in war in the first place, and then they lost the war against David, and now they're plotting as to how to to end the reign of David. Well then, the picture we have in Psalm 2 are nations who have contrived a way to not only end the Davidic kingdom, but nations who once and for all are looking to end the very memory of the God of Israel from their lands, raging against him. And what is God's response? Well, verse 4 says, he who sits in heaven laughs. Those raging against God, said one commentator, well, it's no more than an idle jumping of a grasshopper. Well, the key here, and indeed, the major theme that we find in the Bible is that God rules in meticulous sovereignty. Now, I avoided saying that God simply rules or that he is sovereign. And that's because with many of us, I don't think we've understood this well. So I've used a phrase, meticulous sovereignty. And by that, I mean that there is not a single area of life, be it large or be it small, be it pleasing or be it displeasing, that God does not rule over. You know, I know that even among Christians, many of us have problems with this, but listen. I'm going to quote a number of scriptures, and please listen carefully. And for some, you're going to be amazed at what you hear. The first comes from Moses when God appeared to him at the burning bush, calling him to be the leader of Israel. And Moses complained. And you'll remember, he says, he doesn't speak well. And here's God's answer in Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And there are many more verses like that. Let me string a number of them together. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 
And now from 1 Samuel 2, 6-7. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Or now listen to the words of Job. Remember, at this time he had lost his wealth and his children had died. Job 2, verse 10 says, But he said to her, that his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Should we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, he spoke truly. But there are more texts that speak exactly like that. Ecclesiastes 7, 13 and 14 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Or Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 7 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? From all of this, look at what God does. He makes mouths and eyes and he gives people the gift of sight and the ability to speak. He brings people to life. He makes people rich. He makes the day of prosperity. And from his hand, we receive good. He creates light and he creates well-being. And someone's going to say, yeah, but there's so much bad stuff. It must be throwing God off of his game. Well, according to what we've read, it's God who makes people blind and unable to speak. It is God who has created the day of calamity and even of war. God brings people down, even down to the grave. God makes people poor, and from his hand comes the day of darkness and the day of calamity. He moves nations at his will, and when nations collide, he in sovereignty oversees every single detail of that encounter, be it war or be it peace. That's what I mean by meticulous sovereignty. God is not the author of evil, but no evil passes by him without his consent, without his will that it be allowed to pass for his greater glory. And for believers, we rejoice in this because we know that every event, whether wonderful or very difficult, are allowed meticulously by God for our long-term good. And that's why I like to say if I had cancer tomorrow, and I don't want to have cancer tomorrow, but if I did, it would not be a random accident or just bad luck or bad genes, but rather allowed by the meticulous ruler who is God into my life for some long-term good, either in my healing or in learning from him in his school of suffering or even bringing me to death and being ushered into his presence. Why do I say that? I say it because that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't just hint at it. It says it with clarity. It's not obscure. It says it openly again and again. God rules. He reigns all things and all people. It was General Stonewall Jackson in the American Civil War, and he got that name because as bullets were being fired all around him and as men were dying, he stayed completely calm and at ease in his horse like a stone wall. And when asked how he could remain calm under fire, he said it was because God directs every single bullet meticulously on the battlefield. And it didn't matter if he was in the battlefield or in his bed, he was the Lord's. Now, I profoundly disagree with what Stonewall was fighting for. 
But I know he was right on that matter. And that's why the nations rage. They hate this, and they say, let us band together and let's stop his rule. You mix sin with rulership, and you will find the chemical ingredients of an explosion. And that's what's happening in the world today. And it was happening at David's time. It happened at the beginning of time. It happened at the beginning of the human story. The nations seethe with anger. They declare war on God. And how does God respond to this war that has been declared on his rule? He laughs. He mocks. He holds the rebels in derision or in contempt. And indeed, he's not even moved to rise from his throne. Because you're going to notice, some of the older theologians call God here the sitter in the heavens. He merely stays seated on the throne. And of course, why not? He has nothing to worry about. And today, after all the raging of men like Nietzsche, that I've wiped the horizon of God, well, the genuine Christian church, and I mean the Bible-believing, gospel-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, not the corrupt church of the Middle Ages, but the true one, is bigger and stronger and more numerous than ever before in human history. The sitter of the heavens laughs at Nietzsche. Indeed, God has wiped Nietzsche from the horizon. Today, after the proud confidence that we have all the keys of nature, we find a world struggling with climate crisis that may well be of our own making. The one in heaven mocks at us. We who believed that the world was in our hands find that it is not. God still owns all. John, I think this is a timely message because I think even in our day and age today, you know, there's all kinds of things that would suggest that they're rivals to God in some respects or, or God isn't significant or God isn't relevant and this is relevant or that's relevant. But time and time and time again, these things pass on and pass by and God is still there. Ben, I have a memory. I was teaching a group of young pastors-to-be, and it was in Romania, and the location where we were teaching was actually in a retreat ground that the communists had uh, arranged uh, to train the next generation of communist leaders where they were telling uh, the people of Romania that Christianity was dying and that it would soon not be remembered and this was the future. And there I was in this very building where they were taught this, and Christians had purchased this building. And I was, had this wonderful privilege of being a part of training young pastors. And it reminded me again, you know, the sitter in the heavens mocks and laughs and holds them in derision. I have seated my king on my holy hill. Thanks so much, John. And, and remember to join us tomorrow as we conclude our series, To the King, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This past year, we've seen some groundbreaking advancements in terms of Back to the Bible Canada's international initiatives. This July, in partnership with Back to the Bible India and Sri Lanka, Bible teaching conferences were held with over 750 international church leaders and pastors attending collectively. One pastor wrote, Today I heard the wonderful guidance and teaching of the Word of God through Dr. John Newfeld. I praise the Lord for being given the opportunity to attend this conference. What a blessing. We're so humbled at the ways God is expanding this ministry on a global scale. So if you have a heart to see God's word sown around the world, then we invite you to consider donating towards our international efforts. 
You can do so at backtothebible.ca slash international or just call us at 1-800-663-2425.